Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Dr Craig Dale, Head of Policy at Commonweal, and welcome again to Ellen Hoofer from EU Citizens for an Independent Scotland. Hello. Um, so, Ellen, regular guest on the show now. Uh, you were last on the show in October when we were talking about settled status and some of the uh, things that you were trying to uh, negotiate with the Scottish Government with. Um, we've also previously had you on to discuss some things that have uh, made some progress through the Parliament recently, the, the Referendums Bill and the Electoral Franchise Bill. So in the last few months, we've had the Referendums Bill pass, and we've had the Electoral Franchise Bill move to stage two in a hopefully three-stage process that we'll eventually see it passing. Uh, do you want to talk about, a little bit about your, your impressions or discussions around them? Sure. So the last time that I was on it was quite... I was quite nervous about how specifically Labour MSPs were going to behave in this debate, um, whether they were going to stick to what the Labour manifesto for the 2019 general election had proposed, which was basically voting rights for everyone, including um, in participation in national elections, yeah. which currently isn't available to EU citizens or any other migrants that don't hold um, either membership of a former Commonwealth nation or British citizenship themselves. So that was quite a wide scope. But the the debate um, went really, really well on the electoral franchise bill. Um, it was the, we, there was a couple of almost comically bad moments, specifically from the Conservative Party mm. trying to argue against any electoral franchise. <laughs> yeah, that um, was that was a strange one for me looking on where. You have the the Scottish National Party, these these uh, supposed nationalists arguing for the the electoral rights for everyone living within Scotland, and then you had the Conservatives, the vowed enemies of nationalists, arguing that voting rights should be restricted to citizens and blood and birthright. Yep, that's exactly how that went. So, um, the this bill, the electoral franchise bill, has now passed stage two. That was pretty rapid. Yeah. So the first stage was at the end of November. I believe it was the 31st of November that this passed through, or the 30th, something like that. Um, and that was the first stage debate. It actually, um, for somebody who's severely interested in this, the second stage coming through the Scottish Parliament happened so fast after the three and a half years of waiting for this to be introduced finally at the Scottish Parliament that I missed sec the second stage taking place. I'll confess I missed it as well. It was only <laughs> when you sent me a message that, um, that, that I was alerted to it. Yeah, so the, that was quite interesting. Other than the Electoral Franchise Bill, um, another thing to consider is the referendums bill that has also gone through the Scottish Parliament. Maybe you want to say a couple of words on this? Yeah, so this was the bill that is trying to enshrine the the right of the Scottish Government to hold referendums um, and, and to codify how those referendums take place. Uh, the bill's quite carefully crafted to be a general purpose bill for any referendum on any purpose, but really we know the one that they're talking about. Uh, the 2014 refer independence referendum had to have all its rules and regulations made specifically for that purpose and all those rules and regulations were put in specifically for that referendum. They didn't carry on to future referendums. So this bill is trying to make, make referendums a, a codified part of Scottish politics, especially for the one that we kind of all want to see. 
Right. And what has been the progress on that? Um, well, the referendums bill has passed. Yeah. Um, it did go down on constitutional lines, um, as these things could be expected to do. Uh, but it now remains to be seen, you know, what that will actually mean in terms of the Scottish government wanting to bring that referendum, the second independence referendum, because we are now at the stage where a Section 30 letter has been formally sent and formally rejected. As we're recording this, um, there was a another debate in the Scottish Parliament today, Wednesday, uh, saying... Again, reiterating that Scottish government, Scottish Parliament is in favour of a second referendum. Again, that vote went down on, on party lines. Uh, SNP and Greens voting for, the other parties voting against. And within minutes, the UK government said, no, we're, we're just not going to accept that one either. It's not changed our opinion. So we're still in this constitutional deadlock, despite moves towards trying to make some sort of systematic approach to these things possible. So how do you feel that this is going to impact the Scottish public? Because as far as I can see, this serves the Scottish government. At this stage, the only thing we can do is to make constructive suggestions that are being shot down. It actually yeah. reminds me of something that happened fairly recently. Uh, last week, the Scottish government released the immigration bill. Yes, yeah. Um, and Well, the immigration bill, the immigration suggestion yeah. for how immigration should be handled in Scotland. And it basically proposed a separate immigration um, arrangement yeah. for Scotland that proposed a visa, a Scottish visa. Um, maybe so, you wanna... Yeah, so this is coming at an interesting time. Now, this has been a long-standing push from the Scottish Government to try and get separate immigration powers uh, devolved to Scotland, um, arguing that Scotland has specific needs with regard to its demographics uh, and also with regard to its geography. Um, the, we are, as a nation, dependent on immigrants. All of the growth in Scotland's population in recent years has come from immigration. But we're also seeing depopulation of our rural areas and our islands um, towards the more urban areas and, and it's hoped that more immigration could help redress, redress that and help fix other problems that might be building up in, in Scottish society. Uh, but immigration is a reserved matter and the UK wants to cut immigration. So within a couple of hours of this paper being released, to the degree where you kind of wonder whether they had time to read it yeah, I mean, at all. The paper itself was very impressive. I, I went through it, I had a bit of a Twitter thread, uh, I'll link to it in the description of this, sort of going through some key points that I pulled out. I had some nitpicks here and there, but on the whole, um, they were relatively minor or, or just wee niggles. Um, I was actually genuinely very impressed with the paper, more than I thought it would be, to be honest. It lays out uh, five different immigration scenarios running from the present state where immigration is entirely reserved through an intermediate option where Westminster effectively brings in a new point system but allocates different points for different areas of the UK, so Scotland could have lower thresholds for instance, to an, another model where the Scottish government could control those point systems up to a fully devolved immigration system for Scotland and up to a fully independent immigration system for Scotland. So sort of a stage chairing yeah. platter of what yeah. could be done. That's a very smart way of going about it, this. It really was because it, 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 it actually didn't lend itself to the UK government simply saying, no, we're not interested. Because some of these, some of these systems actually 
really played into very nuanced ways about how the UK could reform its immigration system at a point when the UK wants to reform its immigration system yes. in the wake of Brexit and in the wake of this promise to bring in an Australian-style point system. Australia, by the way, devolves its uh, immigration point allocation to some of its, its regions. We're not getting that from the UK. <laughs> Quite frustrating, I'm yeah. sure, for those in the Scottish Parliament who worked hard to send out and, and, and work on this yeah. immigration proposal. Um, I mean, it took me two hours to read through the document. Uh, and, by that time, and, and they had already... By that time, the UK government had already rejected it. So unless they got an advance, no, advance notice, I quite frankly question whether they even read it. Um, yeah, I'm. It, I'm not even sure. We're we're kind of running out of words when it comes to this, but that shouldn't stop the Scottish government or us grassroots supporters to uh, to push and to make yeah. progressive policies. This is the country that we want to live in in the future, and that's why we need to forge policies now. Yeah, I mean, there's there's several stages to this. We can look at the powers that Scotland has and start using them in more radical or more creative ways to, to create the country and create a country that's more like the country we want to be. But we can also start looking at the powers that we don't have but want to have and start showing people what we could do with them. I notice another parallel strategy here. Um, long-time listeners to the podcast will know that the, the, the annual tribulation in August when it comes to the JERS figures uh, Derek Mackay, the finance secretary, recently announced that he was going to start publishing a, a parallel document to Gers that basically outlined what he thought Scotland could look like if it was independent. Something that Commonweal actually pioneered back in 2016 with uh, our policy paper Beyond Gers. Uh, this all plays into some potentially quite smart strategy. Another policy paper that Commonweal published uh, last week called Within Our Grasp kind of lays out this idea of pushing the boundaries of devolution, but also pushing past the boundaries of devolution. That paper I'll probably discuss in the podcast next week. It does sound like uh, something quite common, really, uh, to have this broad approach and have a staged yeah. approach that makes it hard. I mean, not hard enough for the UK government to be ignorant and, you know, apathetic about anything within the bill. But Scotland is walking the walk where it can walk the walk and not mm. just talking the talk. I'd love to say I sat down with the top brass in the Scottish government and laid out this beautiful blueprint and they all said yes and gave me a round of applause. Didn't quite happen like that, but I don't know. Maybe they've been reading our stuff. <laughs> I'm sure they have. At least some bits here and there. <laughs> so this is where we're at now. We're, we're looking at the 31st of January yes. staring us right in the face. It's finally happening after delay after delay after pitfall and... Ditches being dug but not quite died in. Um, yeah, the, the the treaties have all been signed now. Everything's been approved. There's nothing stopping Brexit happening on Friday the 31st now. It's quite bizarre because today the Parliament debate was about whether to keep the EU flag up outside the Scottish Parliament or not. Yeah. And there's been some varied reactions to it. Um, I think been. this is all sort of self-distraction strategy yeah. um, for the last couple of years, well, for, since the independent, well, since the Brexit referendum, I'm sorry, um, EU citizens have already been hit by Brexit, but in the last week I'm really feeling for my British, uh, sorry for the term, but for my British-born friends and family and people across the nation because it seems to be really starting to hit 
most of you that you are losing your rights, yeah. you're losing your EU citizenship, yeah. you are really being robbed. And I know how hard it is to be in that place. At least you guys get to go for it together for, for EU citizens. It's been quite hard because the, the majority of people likes to bury their heads in the sand and not face the reality until necessary. But even those people are starting to face that reality now. Brexit is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've kind of really known since 2016 that this was going to happen, but that's because I'm immersed in this kind of thing on a daily basis. But I, I've met I met people even just last week who, when I mentioned that, you know, we're all losing our EU citizenship on Friday, you know, it hit them for the first time in a way that they hadn't quite realised until, until then. So... Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of emotions on that night. I'm still not entirely sure how I will feel and react when the the, the moment strikes. Um, but you know, it is going to happen. We're going to see what see what happens from there. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of news happening this week. On top of that, we're, we're apparently going to be hearing a an update on the Scottish government's independence plans on Friday as well whether this is going to be a major intervention that completely changes the, the feeling of, of the moment of Brexit or whether it's going to be a way of burying bad news while everyone's looking at something else. You know, I hope it isn't that, but we'll see. Yep. Um, do you have plans? <laughs> well, I think we should talk about that. Yes. Because you have plans. I do have plans. I've actually had plans about this for over a year. About last year, this time, we were looking two months down the barrel of Brexit. That was the first deadline. And I was personally not in a very secure or good space and was considering whether to leave the UK. Um, well, to leave Scotland because I would have left the UK a long time ago. And I started wondering where I would want to be on Brexit Day. What what would that look like? Mm. Where Where would I want to be? And one thing was clear, I'd want to be near the Scottish Parliament. I wanted to not be alone. I wanted to make sure that while I'm here, the Scottish Parliament is surrounded with something hopeful with yeah. other people and, and to to bring something more... Um, look, it's going to be a really sad and quite aggravating, potentially quite angry day for us. We didn't choose this as a nation. And I wanted to try and find a way to make that more positive, to, to find a hopeful spin on it. So I think I have. Right, really. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> so at the Parliament, there are two ponds and I've planned an installation um, that will represent the 28 European member states in one of the ponds uh, until one of the bowls of the 28 is going to be removed to a separate pond. And that's going to be happening at this precise timing of Brexit so of 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock. Yep. Yeah. But before we set the UK bowl on its own way in its own pond, we are going to take the spirit of Europe the little light that shines inside each of the bowls, we're going to take the UK one and pass it to a Scotland bowl that is sitting not within the pond, but on the land tongue that reaches into the pond um, among its friends, but not entirely joined mm. to them. And so 
I'm really hoping that's going to be events all day long. Um, I think it's going to start really, really early and various organisations have come together. But this is what is going to mark Brexit at the Scottish Parliament um, on Brexit night. I think that could be quite a powerful moment. And we have seen just in the, in the EU Parliament today, um, there seems to be some some people still thinking about Scotland uh, to, to mark the the final signing of the... The, the 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 legislation behind Brexit. Um, there was quite a moving scene when the the Parliament all stood up, the EU Parliament stood up and started singing "Old Lang Syne." Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm sure it wasn't whoever chose that song in particular. It wasn't an accident that they chose that song. I'm pretty sure it wasn't as well. And I have to say, I'm I'm a pretty tough cookie, but that kind of moved me to tears. Yeah. Not for the sadness of it, but because I have struggled with my view towards Europe and the European Parliament and the European Commission and I'm sure many of us have in the last couple of years um, specifically when it comes to Spain and Catalonia and the response to that um, I think singing a Scottish song at this time is quite meaningful and they will be I mean trust me European education is no bad they'll know that this is a (laughs) Scottish song um, this was not without significance. Um, also not without significance, Nigel Farage's huffy face. <laughs> yes. <sighs> uh, for, for someone who's won the, the fight of his life and is on the cusp of that final victory when every, all his enemies are scattered before him, doesn't look like a happy bunny, does he? It's quite interesting. He's like Billy No Mates, surrounded by his you know, Brexiteer pals, but still utterly lonely, realising that he's not part of the friendship that is being presented um, and brought to light in a moment such like that one. And uh, it just makes me believe in the goodness in the world. It makes me believe uh, in in European ideals. We are united in diversity. Mm. We are united in solidarity and in peace. And I think... This is more than anything worth fighting for. Look, I'm an EU national whose butt is on the line more than many of of yours, but it has Scotland has enabled me and, and the European spirit has enabled me to use Brexit night as a as a way of finding the unspoken words that Scotland wants the world to see. And I hope that that sort of solidarity will serve Scotland well on its path through the darkness while mm. Europe is shining a light out for us. It does make you wonder that there is often that conversation that, that I have when I'm out giving talks on Scottish independence that we know that in 2014 the EU was ambivalent, almost you know hostile to the idea of Scottish independence and the breakup of a, an EU member state. Um, since then, the UK has more or less burned every bridge it could build with Europe. Yeah, I reckon they can see where we're coming from. <laughs> I, I think there has been a change of attitude, and, and that has come from, well, watching what's going on, but I'm sure also from people um, you know, in the, the EU Parliament really really making the case for, for Scotland. Um, I, I know, and it is in many cases very justified, that a lot of folk in Europe are scared of that N-word, nationalism. So they, they will sort of tar every shade of it with the, the, the same brush. Um, I don't want to stray too much into Scottish exceptionalism, but sort of really making the case of, of 
you know, where Scotland is coming from rather than what people think it might be coming from is quite important. And I do know that people will ask what happens after Brexit once the UK is no longer an EU member state. Will the EU start saying more friendly things about Scotland? I think that's a difficult question to answer. The independence topic is still a can of worms for Europe. And so I think any assumption that it's going to be a cakewalk is ridiculous and it's blind. Scotland will need to fulfil the basic requirements to become an EU member state. And that means potentially first a wee while in the holding pen until we meet those conditions. Um, and, and, I think- and that will obviously then depend not just on Scotland's willingness to meet those. Um, I've written in the past about some aspects of independence proposals that appear on the face of it to not meet those requirements. Things like the Growth Commission's approach to currency. Um, but also uh, 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 um, we have the, the issue that there's going to be a gap between Brexit and Scottish independence and it will really depend on just how much the UK diverges. If the UK significantly diverges from the EU and those changes bed in, it could be quite difficult for Scotland to reverse course on independence and, and become that EU compliant nation again. I think you're you're still spot on when it comes to pinpointing, for example, the currency thing. This is something that requires several years of setup. Yeah. You ha- you are required as a potential member state to have a basic control over your financial matters. Um, and because of that, we can't legitimately say that we want to continue to use the pound until we, we feel otherwise. The financial, the fiscal control over this currency does not lie with Scotland. And if Scotland seeks EU membership, it needs to dare to create its own currency. Yeah, it needs to dare to, to stand up on its own in all respects. The, the the real key part of the EU membership requirements isn't just the requirements themselves, it's that little thing of demonstrating compliance. So even if we do create that currency on uh, on day one, if the EU is not confident that, that we can manage it, uh, and this goes for other aspects as well. If we create a new broadcasting system, you know, we uh, um, try to do something completely radically different from the way the BBC operates, then we have to demonstrate that while it's rad- radically different, it still complies with EU values. You can run through all the chapters of the, the EU membership criteria and, and go through each one of them. Some of them Scotland already complies or and already controls, some of them it only complies because the UK controls it, and Scotland will be setting up something new and has to show the EU that, you know, we we we, we understand what membership means. Yeah, it's quite interesting. At the minute I'm doing a lot of European interviews again, and the question that does come up again and again and again is, do you think like independence is going to solve all of Scotland's issues? No. It will not. It will not, not by itself and of its own right. Otherwise, every independent country would be fine just now. And they aren't. What matters is the policies being implemented and how we prepare for them. And that requires integrity, not party allegiance. So I'm looking forward to see how that goes. The, the, The one problem that independence solves is the problem of who do you blame when things go wrong? Because it's you. Yeah. 
Yeah, that reminds me of Hamilton, the musical. Oh, yes. I <laughs> <laughs> don't know if you guys have heard of Hamilton, but it's really worthwhile for those supporting independence. Um, it's a it's a very smart musical that is quite relevant to the to the cause. Uh, again, I'll, I'll speak about this next week on, when we talk about uh, our latest policy paper. One of the things that we really want to do is start using more public outreach in the form of cultural outreach and in the form of you know outright public mockery of of, of pro union politicians. So. If you're familiar with the, the musical Hamilton, you'll know there are a few songs in there which, uh, let's say, would be very good backdrops to pro-union uh, stump speeches. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start practising now. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to see what's, what's happening yeah. for the rest of the week. I am incredibly nervous about Edinburgh. Uh, and this installation, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to go great. I'm well, like, let's let's get all the listeners out there along uh, to that installation. Where is it and when is it? So it's at the Scottish Parliament. The actual installation is going to take place between half past ten and half past eleven. Um, but people will already be there. There will be speeches on the day. There's lots of events planned. Yeah, I've, I've heard that there's. Uh, Possibly several thousand people already want to turn up. Yeah. So, yeah, it could be a busy night. Uh, it could be a moving night. It will be... It yeah, could. As I said, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to feel when there, but um, if anyone's there, wants a shoulder to cry on or has a shoulder for me, you know, <laughs> let's let's all get through this one together. Aye, that would be good. And if you're coming along, um, maybe bring a wee white rose or a wee yellow rose. The white rose stands for an affront to democracy and the yellow rose for solidarity among EU citizens, with EU citizens, mm. with UK citizens in Europe and all of those. I, I understand they're just symbols, but symbols matter. So if you come along, bring a couple of roses and let's show the world because there's over 40 press requests and we are going to be seen <laughs> at the Parliament. <laughs> well, I'll break out the roses. I'll make sure I've got a couple. That'd be nice. Yeah. So... Just to finish off the podcast, thank you, Ellen, for coming along. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And just a final reminder that everything that Commonweal does is entirely dependent on our supporters who who give us, on average, £10 a month. We don't have the, the, the big donors that some of the political parties do. We don't get government funding, which is great because it allows us to say what we like. We don't have corporate sponsorship. We don't have adverts on the website. We've just got our donors, our supporters, and people that go into the shop and buy our books and our T-shirts and our nice shiny mugs. Um, so everybody who already supports the show, thank you. Everybody who wants to, there's a link in the description. Please help us try and create the Scotland that we want to live in. And also, thank you. <laughs> have a good day. Bye.